Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and a voice for being a mind, but I am the host. And today with me on our panel, we have the esteemed Dan Shapir. Hello from Tel Aviv. Amy Knight. I'm going to mix up my intro and say hello from Nashville from my guest bedroom that's very cozy with a bunch of cats. There's two. Thank you for that. And AJ <laughs> O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live. Let's see what's unique today. The pink wall? It's not pink. Oh. It's blue, Mom? see? Oh, it changed. It's, Sorry. It's supposed to be purple, but yeah, pink's a nice color. Yeah, yeah. Coming at you live from the pink wall. Very nice, very nice. Very masculine looking, if I do say so myself. So, today we are continuing from a previous episode. That would be episode 449 on things every JavaScript developer must know. And we are listening to mostly to the wisdom of one Dan Shapir, although <laughs> all of us will be participating as possible, needed, etc. Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com slash code. That's audibletrial.com slash code. So I believe, according to our list here, the last item we knocked off our list was polyfills. And so now moving down the list, we are going to move on to regular expressions, otherwise known as necessary evils. Yeah, actually, actually, before we get to that one, didn't we say that we're going to talk about yeah. the DOM ahead of oh, it? Oh, okay. Yep. Yes. Yep. So we, let us so, dominate yeah. the DOM and talk about the DOM. <laughs> nice, so nice. If, even even though, like you said, uh, I, I, I'm the one who suggested this topic and I'm like supposed to, to, to lead it. I, Amy, you're the one who brought up the DOM. So why don't you start with the DOM? Yeah, like I like I said, I wasn't. I wasn't here last time that we started working through this list. And so when I opened up the sheet today, I was like in shock that like, you know, going back to basics, the whole reason JavaScript was invented was to manipulate the DOM. We don't have the DOM on here. So well, some of us know, forget because all... the DOM's implemented in C++, not in JavaScript. So, you know, it's easy to leave sure. it by the wayside when you get to the <laughs> upper echelons of the JavaScriptese. So I guess you could say, since Amy wants to talk about it, that makes her a dominatrix. But first of all, <laughs> let us let us define DOM. What does the letters D-O-M stand for? Document object model. Document. Uh, speak Amy, up for the people in the back. Yeah. Yeah, you're, I can't you're, hear you. Document object model. Sorry, Document sorry. object model. Like it's it's actually interesting that a lot of people think that DOM is is a part of JavaScript because, like Amy said, there it seems to be what JavaScript was created for, uh, for the purpose of manipulating the DOM. But it's actually a separate thing. The ECMAScript standard uh, has nothing specifically about the DOM, and the DOM itself can theoretically be manipulated by other programming languages. Even okay. remember in the in the really old days, the Internet Explorer had both JavaScript and, or actually JScript back then and VBScript built in, and you could manipulate the DOM using either one of those. So, so the DOM is distinct from JavaScript, but on the other hand, they were created together. 
the very original DOM was created by Brandon Ike alongside JavaScript, and it grew from there. Because like you said, JavaScript was created to manipulate the browser, and the only way to manipulate the browser is using the DOM. We've got DOM level one and DOM level two, DOM level three. Are we up to DOM level four yet? Serious question? To be honest, I have no idea. Does it even matter? Well, that's, that's, so DOM level one, I think was just like elements and DOM level two, I think added stuff like being able to like click on them. And I, I think I the Dom three or four added stuff like the video elements and video playback and streaming of byte streams or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's the added complexity. It's the, but, but things are so, being added to the Dom all the time these days. So it's not is, some, go for so, it, Amy. No, 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 go for it. I'll come in. Uh, I was saying that things are just being added to the DOM constantly these days, and many of them don't have anything to do directly with manipulation of the HTML itself. They're just additional services being provided by the browser as a, as a platform. For example, we recently had Thomas from Google talking about Project Fugu, where you're accessing things like the file system and stuff like that, and you're doing all this thing, or, or, or Bluetooth devices, and you're doing all of these things through the DOM, and it has nothing to do with HTML per se. But I think, yeah, the original DOM was basically just document write, I think, more or less, and look, look how far we've gotten. I do think that my perspective on it is that it wasn't on the, on the list simply because it's obvious in the sense that, yeah, unless you're one of those really rare people who just do JavaScript on the back end, you kind of um, need I'm to right here, Dan. Well, I'm right here. So, so here's, here's the part like I wanted to chime in. So it's not just like manipulating the DOM too, but because, you know, at, at this point, so many frameworks abstract a lot of that away from us. But like Dan, you and I know this from, you know, some of the stuff that we talked about from my prior job. Like by the time you get into like performance optimization and stuff like that, it's really important to understand like the different DOM events and just the different browsers. So when I say DOM, I mean, just like, you know, different, how the browser works, how the browser is rendering your JavaScript. Because if you want to performance tune, you need to understand like the order of execution for all of that. I, I totally agree. Although I do think that it goes beyond performance, you know, obviously, yeah, I, yeah, given yeah. my job, I think that performance is important, but I think it definitely goes beyond performance. If you recall that episode with uh, Bruce Lawson talking about semantic HTML, yep. the browser, the HTML is the basis for the web. It's, you know, JavaScript is kind of an add-on in a sense, and you can't, and since this is a podcast for JavaScript developers, so we're looking at everything from the perspective of, of JavaScript, you can't talk about HTML without thinking about the DOM. So again, I think that the DOM is an obvious component. I do think that these days there are people who kind of take the approach that since they're using a certain framework, then maybe they don't need to care about that DOM that much. And to an extent, I guess that's slightly true, but it's if you, you don't have at least a basic understanding of the DOM and how it operates, then it feels like a house without foundations. And, yeah, even, these, yeah. and even these frameworks ultimately don't get totally away from the DOM because in, in React, you've got JSX, which kind of models the DOM. And in Angular, you've got the, in Vue, you've got the various templating languages, which are again based on, on the DOM and HTML. 
so so you and and you've got all these APIs like we've mentioned before that have nothing to do with the HTML itself, but still are part of the DOM, and you still need those. The one thing I will concede is that I don't think you need to memorize the DOM or the DOM API. I think the DOM has gotten to, 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 to the point where it's so large on the one hand and Google and the MDN are so good on the other hand that you just need to know that something exists and to be able to find it. You don't need to exactly memorize the APIs. Yeah, and I think there is a short list of things that I mean, basically, the, the things you're going to interact with every single day, if you if you actually use the DOM, are things like a pen child, closest, style, set, get attributes, add event listener. That's like that event listener is absolutely number one. And I, I mean, I, it, once you g- get after that, you start getting into application specifics. Oh, create element too is probably there. But inner HTML. Hmm. Inner HTML. Oh, yeah, inner HTML, inner text. Anyway, I don't, I don't mean to build out the, the full list. Actually, you know, there's, there's like a dozen or so things that are things that you will use every day if you, if you actually use the DOM. Actually, in your, in your text is something like deprecated. I think you're supposed to, to use text content these days or something like that. I don't yep. even know anything about that, but inner text works for me, does what <laughs> I needed to do. So, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, I'm yeah, but I, what I was saying that even with the basic things like add event listener, there's that third parameter, which used to be a Boolean and now can be an object because you can pass all sorts of options into it. And I don't think anybody remembers all the options exactly what they mean. So it's perfectly legitimate. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Not try to remember all this API because the API is just huge. Yeah. And then one thing that we didn't actually talk about is what the DOM is. <laughs> um, so the, the, for those in the back... <laughs> HTML is text. It's, you know, it's, it's something you can print out of a printer. And the DOM is a graph that represents, that, that, that the text gets parsed and it creates a graph object that you can walk down. So it's kind of like a tree or graph representation of how things are connected and then what methods, meaning like add event listener or, or, or things that will set the style or um, move move things or sort them, you know, but that kind of stuff, that's what we mean by the DOM. It's once the HTML is parsed, the thing that lives in memory that you can interact with that is more akin to code is the DOM. And the DOM is why you get these weird situations where you've got a list of something and you call dot map or whatever. I mean, they may have added that to the DOM by now, but you know, you, you call some method that you know exists on every array and it, it doesn't work. That's the DOM. It's, uh, that's actually called a node list, which is completely separate from a JavaScript array. They have nothing in common other me, than that force the interface over it sometimes. Let me add a clarifying point too. So the HTML that you see on the page, what the browser does is it takes the DOM and it takes something called the CSS OM, which is the similar structure for CSS when you're writing your HTML and it mashes those two together into something that I won't get into, but then the output is the HTML you see on the page. Indeed, and there are lots of good talks about it. I think that some of them that you've given about how these things work together. So the bottom line, I think, if I were to summarize this point is, yes, if you're using JavaScript, you need to know the DOM. You need to know what it is. You need to probably know parts of it. You don't need to know it by heart. Probably nobody knows the entire DOM by heart. 
That's why, that's why we have MDN. Amen to that. So let's move to the next one, which yes. is, I think, a much more contentious point. And that's the one you mentioned before, which is regular expression. And we've got Chuck. Chuck, we have you just in time. Yeah, the whole full-time job thing. Uh, they called a meeting last minute, right, when yeah. the episode was supposed to start. So, so what's up, Chuck? Suck. I love that. So, yeah, in terms of, you know, I'll, I'll offer my two cents. Speaking of that, do you ever wonder why it's a penny for your thoughts, but you put your two cents in because somebody's making a penny somewhere? But anyway, regular expressions can be, at least in my experience, they're good to know, but I don't know if I would call them necessary. They can be incredibly powerful. Once you ever, if you ever learn, you know, regex as you can, or regex, I'm not sure how people shorten it. You can do some Reg- regular expression. It's, it's uh, hard. You can. <laughs> You can do some amazingly powerful things when it comes to something like, you know, finding text in a string or something like that, or replacing text based on text input and so on. But sometimes, in my experience, the effort to get that figured out isn't really worth the time. And I do know that one one place where you definitely don't want to use them, as I've seen referenced many a times on Stack Overflow or other places is HTML, you know, trying to get something out of an HTML page. But that's my two cents on them. Maybe I'll, I'll step back a little bit and talk briefly, like we've done with the DOM, about what it actually is. So the funny thing about regular expressions are, is that they're essentially another programming language embedded within JavaScript. So when you get JavaScript, you actually get two programming languages for the price of one. You've got JavaScript and you've got regular exp- expressions. It's, a, it's actually what's known as a DSL or, dom- or domain-specific language. That means it's not intended for general use. It's intended for a specific purpose. And in the case of uh, regular expressions, it's intended for string pattern matching. For example, if you want to search a string for, some, for something, but the thing that you're searching for is not just a simple substring, but rather something of a pattern. Like, let's say you want to search something that has somewhere between two to five consecutive X's in it for some reason. So you can use regular expressions for that. And regular expressions were actually created way before JavaScript itself. Apparently, I just looked it up on Wikipedia, they were created way back in the 50s by uh, a mathematician, even Cole Clean. I think that's how his name is pronounced. And from there, they made their way into programming languages. Perl got a really powerful version of regular expressions. And apparently, JavaScript inherited uh, the Perl implementation. So what we have in JavaScript today is essentially similar or to what you had in Perl, which was based on on that stuff that was created, you know, starting back in the 50s. Yeah, I think a number of languages got the Perl version. I know Ruby copied a good deal of the Perl regexes. As far as whether or not you need to know it, I'm assuming that's where we're at here. My experience is it really depends on how much text processing you're doing, right? I disagree. I think regular expressions are something that make, I mean, every day you're writing code in a code editor. If you're not using regular expressions, how are you even searching through your own code? That's it's I'm, something I'm that's using beyond the JavaScript. Tool. Well, the built-in tools all support regular expressions. If yes, you do a but search, these days, 
these days you can actually click right click on or on, or something like that on an, an identifier and it will uh, find all the occurrences of it for you so because editors these days have more semantic context than they used to have you you probably need you don't need regular expressions and searches quite as much as you used to i think but but I, I do yeah. agree that they can be a powerful tool when you're doing some sort of global replace, and it's really mm-hmm. important when you, that when you do use them for a global replace that you also have a global undo because you will likely botch them up and replace stuff that you didn't mean didn't intend to be replaced into something totally like junk. Yeah, I, so I, I think with, that it's beyond just JavaScript. Regular expressions is something that if you are a developer and you do not know regular expressions, in my opinion, you are not getting beyond the junior level. I don't even know if you've completed the the junior level successfully. I mean, you don't have to know the whole thing because it's huge. You can never know all about regular expressions. It's like probably just as big as the DOM, but to know how to do a basic wildcard match, a not match, like a grouping, that kind of thing, just the basics, you know, the, the top 12 things that people need to know. I'm I'm going to be aggressive and say you ought to know those things. Well, if if you're going off of the getting past the junior level, that to me is a little bit different conversation because a lot of getting past the junior level, I mean some of it is is sure it's it's technical knowledge, but some of it is going to be effectively how many times have you seen how many problems, right? And so you know, if you haven't had to use regular expressions, you probably haven't seen enough problems to move much beyond junior development, right? Because you haven't you haven't run into the problems that regular expressions solve, and you probably ought to have some experience with them. But that said, most developers, most of the time, yeah, they're not really using regular expressions all that much. And to be perfectly honest, you know, I, yeah, I've used them some, but you know, not, not exceptionally heavily. And I use them every single day. Like, and if I ever need to scrape something, which I mean, anytime you're working outside of your own APIs, scraping becomes something that, you know, you have to do some of the time, whether it, what just text, text replace on objects that come in, like sanitizing HTML. And I know, I know Uh like there's a lot of, you know, you could list out, code that's going to be more efficient but just to get things quickly done i'm i'm surprised do, do other people believe that most developers aren't using regular expressions on like so, the daily i have a question about that maybe you guys know when people finish boot camp, javascript boot camps these days do they know regular expressions or do they know that no. regular expressions no. exist that exists so, yes no no i mean other than the basics i think so they do know like, the basics what I mean, what are like, the basics? Um, that it begins and ends with a slash? <laughs> My basics, let me look here. So like find and replace in VS Code. Ooh, it doesn't. Like I was curious yeah, if you had to Well, no, no, it does, but I was curious if you at least had to specify um like the syntax for capitalization and stuff like that, and you don't. I feel like back in the day you used to have to at least specify that. Um Anyways, I think you have to specify that if you do a, uh, like, just use the regular JavaScript built-in string matchers. So you might need to know, like, 
the bare minimums like that. Yeah, I've done find and replaces in VS Code and there's a little icon on the far right of your search field that you can click that tells it whether or not it's a regular expression and how to interpret it. And I've used that before for sure, but not super often. Most of the time when I'm setting up a new project, that's when I tend to use it more. And essentially that's just because I'm, you know, I'm finding stuff and sort of creating all of my shortcuts or components or whatever. So that as I get further down the road, the common stuff's handled by a component and I don't have to go look them up anymore. I feel like the most common kind of like stuff that you have to know is, which is unfortunate, but it's really just like the matching for your different like ignore files, setting up different like build systems and stuff like that when you want to like search for files, exclude files. So Mm -hmm. not not like I think the kind of regex stuff that AJ is thinking, but just like the, the very basics of like. So you're looking at it less from the perspective of the code that you're actually writing and more from the perspective of your development environment. Like tooling, yeah. And the tooling. Interesting. I'm not quite, I don't use it quite as much as AJ, I think. But on the other hand, I'm hard-pressed to think of any project that I've ever done which didn't include at least one instance of a regular expression in it. And given that, it means that you probably need to know it because you're highly likely to encounter it. On the other hand, almost every... Like very often when I have used it, I ended up being sorry that I had because it either broke or didn't do exactly what I wanted it to do or ended up being so complicated that nobody's able to actually read it and understand what it does. Or, and you can never actually fix it. You, you essentially always have to rewrite it from scratch if you need to make any sort of a change in it. You're breaking um, my heart. So we I'm need kind to, of we have a discussion about regular expressions because I, I actually really want to understand what the sources of trouble are for you for you guys. Because to me, it's that it's it's a read only language. It's a write only language. Sorry, it's, I don't. You I don't. I don't write complicated regexes. You know, like I, I've seen them. I've seen them. I've seen people's examples where they have a regex that's like fifty lines long. Like, a, you know, you go look at a a Simver regex, for example. I mean, like, very, very rarely do I ever write something like that. Not to say that I haven't ever so, done it. It's usually, you know, very simple, like capture group, match, not match. Like that's what. So I let me see. tell you. So let me tell you about a particular case in which I used regular expressions, and they seem to do their job really well. And then I ended up sorry for ever introducing them into the project. So we had uh, this uh, feature in Wix where uh, (laughs) we had this feature in Wix where if you put in a text block, the product came up with this concept of uh, smart links or whatever. And we would automatically identify uh, parts of the text which looked like phone numbers or email addresses and automatically converted them into links so that on a mobile device, you could just click that phone number and you, you know it will start up the dialer or, set, or open up the mail client or whatever. And in order to do that, uh, what they did is essentially they took the text block, the, the person who implemented it took the text block and essentially parsed it as HTML in order to get the relevant text areas and then they would search through the text areas looking for the relevant patterns. But it turns out that that's actually a fairly expensive operation. 
taking a, a, a block of, uh, of uh, raw HTML text and parsing it just to find all the text blocks is, isn't cheap. Uh, it's, it's, it's work. So I had the really cool idea, talking about performance, that I could look at the string uh, a priori before doing this parsing and see if there's anything in it which might look like a phone number. And if there isn't, then we could just so short circuit and not do this heavy operation of, of parsing it. So it was okay, like if I made mistakes, if I decided that it should par be parsed even if it shouldn't, but not the other way around. False positives uh, are okay, false negatives are not okay. You want everything that might look like a phone number to get passed in. You don't want anything that definitely doesn't look like it to get passed in. Yeah, exactly. Although if you have made too many mistakes to the other direction as well, then there's no point in this whole exercise. So some false positives are okay, but not too many. And certainly you don't want the false negatives. And I use a regular expression for that because taking a text block and, and then do running a regular expression on it can be really, really fast. And then we ran into all sorts of problems because I uh, misidentified IDs as being phone numbers or and bottom line is we just had to, after we used it for a while, we started getting complaints about things not being interpreted as phone numbers or things being misinterpreted. And then basically we had to scrap the whole thing and just throw away this, this uh, short circuit code because we just couldn't, because like Steve said initially, trying to parse even to an extent, HTML using regular expressions usually end, ends in tears. And, and it did in this case. It brings out Zalgo. Zalgo visits you. And another interesting scenario is I recently saw a page where the code was like the browser was stuck for something like 20 seconds on 100% CPU. And it turned out that the problem was that they were using, I, I opened up the, the dev tools because that's what I do and stuff like that because I was curious. And it turns out that some uh, tag manager injected some code which contained a fairly simple and uh, risk-free looking bit of regex and they ran it on something and that regex blocked the browser for 20 seconds. So you need to be aware that a regular expression can actually like kill your CPU if done incorrectly. Yeah, anytime you get into reverse lookups, in fact, Go doesn't even implement that. A lot of languages do not implement that that particular section of the regex because that is, uh, I think it's called a back reference is the technical name. Back JavaScript does, right? JavaScript does. Back references are something that you should know regex well enough to know not to use. And basically when you get, I mean, I don't know, what I consider the basics, like I said, is being able to do a match and not match in a group. When you get into the question mark colon stuff and the question mark minus, or I don't mm -hmm. remember exactly what it is, but at that point, that I think that's what the back reference is. I don't, I don't, I never go into that part because it looks confusing to me and um, I'm aware that it, it does cause those problems where you can actually have uh, basically it becomes a an order like a, an infactorial type search and and yeah so small multiple denial of service attacks against node frameworks have been announced as CVEs because of people doing back reference regular expressions and stuff like that. So I, I do agree, they have to be used with caution. And regular expressions are the perfect, ideal textbook example of, of what 
unit tests are great at. You give it a bunch of inputs and then fuzzy, fuzzy testing as well. Though I don't use that much myself, but you give it a list of things that you know should match, a list of things you know shouldn't match, and you put a couple junk yeah. ca- characters in, loop over an array of it, and boom. I mean, I most I always unit test my regexes. That's one thing that's that I don't I don't ever create a regex that I don't unit test. It, because okay. it makes sense. It makes it easy to develop the regex. It makes it easy to know that it's correct and it's really fast to do. It it makes my coding process faster, not slower. All righty. So in order to cover some more items, let's move on. I'm sure we could beat this to death for another half hour easily. <laughs> oh, I think so. Uh, especially with AJ. Really but really that important. Did we reach uh, a conclusion though? They're good and bad. Need to know. Maybe the basics. Okay. Yeah, the basics, like AJ said, some of the basic stuff, just being able to find, identify, replace, I think. I, I tend to. I agree. I agree with Steve. You need to know the basics of regular expressions. You need to be to know enough that when you encounter something like that in the code, you know what it is. You know what it means. Not necessarily be able to tell exactly what it does, but at least know what it is. And hopefully, there's a comment in there to tell you what it actually does. Oh boy, you want to open up a whole can of worms, code comments. But we'll uh, we'll uh, the comments that I usually see around, especially the ones that have like the fuzzy look ahead and fuzzy look behind are we don't know why this works but it does don't touch this line (laughs) one of the comments that i I had a developer who came after me comment one time was i had a particular case and this was in php it wasn't in javascript but i tried a regex couldn't get it to work so i left a comment that said okay regex is a pain in the rear here so i'm going to string string functions and i got a laugh out of that (laughs) anyway so moving on let's talk about method chaining who wants to describe what we mean by method chaining? I think jQuery. it was jQuery. jQuery, exactly. I, I don't, I'm not <laughs> sure that jQuery invented method. It's actually an interesting question. Did jQuery invent method chaining in JavaScript? That was the first place that know? I ever saw it was in, was in jQuery. And I, it's, I seem to remember reading it. Yeah, this is something you can do that's new in jQuery. And I have to look up timelines to see when that got it, if that got it added to the JavaScript spec later. The, the, the most basic method chaining is the array methods. You call dot yes. map, you Bad call filter dot reduce. filter. Yeah. Sure, you can I call dot reduce. I mean, that's the most, most, most simple of all the chaining methods is. And, and like slice, slice was on there forever ago. I think sort is chainable as well. So method chaining just means that when you call a method, the same object is the return value of the method. Actually, not necessarily the same. It, it, the oh, same. Right. Well, not necessarily. I was going to make that distinction. I was sure, going sure. to say that that with method chaining, the, the point is that every method returns an object. And then you basically chain methods by directly invoking methods on the return object instead of, let's say, putting it into some other uh, intermediary identifier or something like that. So you write x dot method invocation dot method invocation dot method invocation and that's that becomes a chain because it, it looks like links in the chain with the dots being that thin part between the the chain links so let invented it i i feel like the key takeaway here is you have to understand that chaining means that what you said dan that you're returning something so if you want to like implement something that is chainable you have to return something and, and i do think that new developers I agree. I do think that they also, new developers also need to be aware 
of the concept of uh, returning this, because otherwise it might look really strange in the code. Yeah. That that sometimes, like AJ said, sometimes you return the very instance that was passed to the that was used to invoke the original method, and then instead That's of the doing query approach, yeah, exactly. Instead of doing x dot f parentheses and then x dot g parentheses, you do x dot f parentheses dot g parentheses to achieve the same effect and kind of writing shorter shorthand notation instead of, of invoking each one of these methods explicitly. And and this is also how the the DOM has always worked. So I mean var a equals document.query selector all a get all the links then or let's just say query selector then you could do a dot closest div and then that's going to give you the div that contains the a and then you could do div you know and then if, instead of doing var a var div var whatever you just click take away the vars and just directly dot 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 yeah i'm i'm not necessarily always keen on on that approach sometimes i do like to use intermediary variables with oh, descriptive sure. names just as sort of placeholders and i usually use const by the way when i do that rather than var because they don't change i assign to them and then never modify them but and they're kind of like intermediary as i said placeholder to to show where i am in the chain but i think that the bottom line is is this is a really common pattern it's used in a lot of scenarios. Like you said, it's used in the DOM itself. It, it's used by jQuery. It's used in, the, in JavaScript, uh, the language itself, in, for, for array methods. It's uh, used uh, in load, by Lodash. It's used in a lot of situations. And consequently, I, I definitely think that you need to be aware of this pattern and understand what it means. Yeah, one, one thing that I want to ask related to this then is, and we talked about prototypes and this keyword and things like that. But those things play into how this works. So do you need to understand that interplay or do you just need to understand what the pattern looks like? That's an interesting point. I do think that in a lot of ways with array chaining, this behaves like it does in most other object-oriented languages. You don't overwrite this in those cases. So you you need to understand what the this is, especially if you you see the return this, especially if it's if if it's indeed applied to the same object. But I don't think you need to get in, you don't need to understand pro, prototypal inheritance in order to use method chaining. I think let's put it this way. Okay, so I think we've covered that one well. I want to skip one item in our list and move on to a biggie when it comes to JavaScript and getting data, and that's promises and async await. I agree. That's indeed a biggie. And, and the funny thing is that in a lot of ways, when I, when I wrote this bullet down, I was kind of thinking about which way to order it. Because obviously, promises came before async await, and async await, in fact, is built on promises. But I do think that for a lot of especially junior developers, they might actually like benefit from using a sync await while trying to think as little as possible about promises. But on the other hand, it's not possible really to use a sync await without being wholly unaware of how promises work. So, yeah. And, and you've, I mean, I, I just, you have to use promises with async await or you write terrible, ugly code. Like nobody it's wants to buggy. look at a try-catch tree. And buggy. Buggy yeah. code, because even if you have to do like 
it you still have to implement like promise.all with async await. Exactly. You want to yeah. So I, I think you need to first you need to understand method chaining or you can't understand promises. You need to understand promises or you cannot use async await in a way that makes sense. You just write really ridiculous looking code. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. So does anybody want to give maybe much of the descriptions you can without being visual of how a promise works and then what async await adds to a promise, the syntactical sugar that it adds on top of a promise? Without being visual. Yeah. That's, I, mean, I mean, without what I mean is we obviously it's a podcast, so people can't see well, what we're doing, but give about, make a valid attempt. I'll, I'll take a stab at, at the beginning and, and, when I falter, somebody can carry the torch. JavaScript, and we kind of touched on that when we were talking about the event loops and message queues and whatnot. JavaScript is built on asynchronicity. It sort of never really blocks. Whenever you perform a lengthy operation, the way that it kind of works is that you invoke that operation. That operation happens in the, is, happens in the background somewhere else, and you just keep on running without that operation actually completing. So obviously, you want to know when that operation completes. You want to be notified when that operation completes. Let's say, for example, you're downloading a resource from the network. You invoke the function that starts the download, but it immediately returns without the resource because it just started that operation, and sometime later, it will finish. So what you used to do is you would handle a callback, a JavaScript function that you gave that operation as a parameter, for example, as an argument. And that callback would be invoked when that operation finished. But that turned out it worked. And it was a really powerful pattern. But it turned out that it had a lot of problems with it. For example, it would result in code that had a callback inside of a callback inside of a callback. So you had these kind of pyramids of doom of callbacks inside callbacks. Because um, you needed to keep state between them. And so the objects needed to be accessible in the innermost callback. Yeah, exactly. So that was one problem. Another problem was that sometimes, let's say I wanted to wait on two things. Let's say I was downloading two files and I only could do the operation that I wanted to perform when both downloads finished. And that turned out to be kind of really difficult to implement with callbacks and people used to do a lot of mistakes or they would just download the things uh, sequentially instead of, of concurrently because they just couldn't figure out how to do it properly. So then promises kind of came to the rescue. They weren't invented in JavaScript. It's a, it's a well-known design pattern that treats, and the idea is that the function that, that works asynchronously, you know, you can't have it return uh, the result because the result isn't ready. So instead, it, it still has a return value, and that return value is a promise that you will eventually get the result. So instead of passing in a callback as an argument to this, such a function, you do take its return value, but its return value is like a wrapper that says, I'm not resolved yet, but eventually I will be. And when I will be resolved, I'll have that return value that you were looking for. 
And the way that, sorry, go for it, Amy. Yeah, I was going to say like a good visual, I think, is like a promise gives you this thing that you can pass around. Exactly. You can pass these around. You can reuse them. You can, we said that like waiting for certain, for a couple of things together used to be problematic. Well, with promises, you can combine them in interesting ways. And yeah, again, a lot of hand waving. The the thing that was problematic before that I think promises help solve is the convention with promises is you have one input and one output. And that makes functions composable because you can load up an options object and pass it in and it can go into the next one, into the next one, into the next one, whatever. Like you can you can kind of do, I guess, input chaining similar to the output chaining. So you have composable functions. You can do f of g of x. Whereas not that you couldn't do it before, but there were so many different examples of how to do it poorly that the good examples of how to solve the problem didn't shine through. And when promises came around, the promise examples started out with people that knew how to do asynchronous code, showing you how to compose objects and functions in a way that you can pass them through a chain and get the desired result at the end. And of course, you know that did fall apart to some degree, but I think that was one of the great values of it. More than, more than the pattern of promises was, was the documentation of this is how you use it. Because if we had that documentation and we all agreed that this is the way that we're going to do it before, we could have had success, but we, we didn't. Some people put their error as the last argument in, in the return function and some people put it as the first. And, um, and you know, with the dot then and the, the dot catch, you've got your, your solution and your error solved for it. You know exactly how you're going to get to when there's a good result and when there's a bad result. And, and you know that when there's a bad result, the bad result is going to bubble. It, it's it's the, the method by which we program was standardized in a way that whether or not you agree with it, whether or not you understand it, it does it consistently and therefore becomes composed. The problem with promises, though, and you touched on that, AJ, is because they were based on composition of, of method chaining and composing functions, that they were they were really encouraged the uh, functional writing code in a functional style. Uh, and while a lot of JavaScript developers were really cool with that and even liked it a lot, a lot of JavaScript developers were not. A lot of JavaScript developers liked to write code in the imperative way. And for people like that, being forced to chain thens looked really weird and nothing at all like the JavaScript that they were used to. And you're sighing, AJ. Oh, I just, I just think this is the unfortunate thing of we need another we need another language in the browser. We just need an entirely different language that people that want to do things that, you know, I, I just, it's, it's just JavaScript has fallen on this sword. You know, it, if we had had another language that people that don't like JavaScript could have been using, which I, I mean, now we have WebAssembly. So, I mean, we're going to see a lot more Rust development, but that's all, you know, fairly functional and and maybe maybe some other language you know comes around that really takes hold that's more of an imperative language, but it's yeah, I, I think the worst thing that's happened to JavaScript is people trying to force it to be not JavaScript. 
Possibly, but I actually think that the Asinco weight was kind of like, in a, to an extent, trying to pull it back, that making it possible to write no, uh, I mean asynchronous JavaScript. JavaScript is functional and promises are a perfectly JavaScript way to do things because they make sense with how JavaScript works. Async await is something I would say is inherently not JavaScripty because it goes counter to the way that... So never mind. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but let me... So another another amusing story. So this one from a long time ago, I had uh, this uh, friend who was a C++ developer coming into JavaScript and he was writing uh, his first JavaScript application and he came over to me to ask me a question and his question was, I'm performing this network operation. How do I block on it until it finishes? And, you know... Uh, and there and there was no well yeah you could do synchronous uh, ajax back then but really nobody even then we knew better than doing that so you really had no way of doing it i i basically told him you don't do that you use this weird asynchronous http xml request object that the browser gives you well these days you kind of can't do it because you can do a wait fetch and it seems as if it's blocking because in the context of that specific function, it does in fact block the, the continued execution of that specific function. The tricky part is that other functions and even other instances of that function can execute while you're waiting for that fetch to finish. But that particular fun- invocation instance of that function will indeed be blocked. And and I I like... I, I've said this before, I broke my edge. I have started using async await. And it for me personally, I feel like I can use it in a way that makes the code more readable to me. Now, is it more readable to someone else? Does someone else understand any better what it's doing? Probably not, because they'll see that I'm doing like an await and then a dot catch and then returning a defaults object. And they probably have no idea what that means. But as someone who has been using promises for a long time, and there are situations where it's like, well, it would be nice if I didn't have to nest this, and I can eliminate a couple lines of code, and it does actually read easier. But I don't think it reads any easier for someone that doesn't understand promises, because I'm mixing in promise.all, .catch, sometimes I do chain with a .then, you know, it's it's a tool in the toolbox, but yeah, I, there's most of my code that has async await in it is mix and match. All right, so we've got probably another five, 10 minutes left. So let's try to knock out another item on our list here, and that's iterators and generators. Oh, yeah, I, I wanted to know if we could bring up two things that are not important that no one needs to bother learning, and, and you just brought up the one on that list. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> which, and which uh, one of the two is that? Oh, no, no. That, well, that, that was one line item on the list was number 13, iterators and generators. And oh, okay. So, I think that's the so dumbest thing. We don't need to learn those things, so let's move on. <laughs> no, actually, I, I'll say something about it in like two minutes. So uh, the bottom line is that I agree with with what AJ said. I think the the majority, the vast majority of JavaScript developers, unfortunately, don't need to know about uh, iterators and generators. I think it was a, a a nice addition to the language. Other programming languages like C++ or even Java have made really good use of these sort of patterns. But in JavaScript, they kind of, I don't know, died on the vine to an extent. I I do think that people who implement libraries and frameworks 
can benefit from them because you can use them to create really powerful APIs that do a lot of stuff on the outside, look really like arrays and stuff, and use the iterators and generators on the inside. In fact, the JavaScript itself does that. The, the spread operator is built on top of iterators and generators, and spread operator is, is really useful and definitely something that the JavaScript developers need to know these days. But I do agree that, the, that unless you're implementing libraries and frameworks, you probably don't need to know about them. And I would ask yeah. you, if you are implementing libraries and frameworks, please don't. Just use promises or async await. <laughs> like, don't add one more weird thing to the mix because it's, it's not like they came up with a sane implementation that is intuitive and that's easy to use. It's like, let's dig into our mind caves and come out from random theories from the 60s and create a whole new way to implement this that's not like anything else and that's completely confusing. Like, if you use generators and iterators in other languages, they make sense, they're consistent with the language. Generators and iterators in JavaScript, if there's one feature that is the most removed from how JavaScript works, that's what I would pick. It's so yeah, odd. but Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. You don't, to use iterators, you don't need generators, and you may not even need to be aware of the fact that there are iterators under there. So inside the library code itself, where unless you're doing a PR on, on the code that I've written, there might be generators and iterators from the outside, it just looks like a collection. Think about the JavaScript map and set objects. I, they I, don't, even, I, I don't want to go there either. Oh. <laughs> but that's, that's I was just, map set symbol like those things. I, I, I don't even want to talk about them. I'm, I'm not going to comment more. I was just going to chime in and basically say, we use iterators, but we tend to think of them as functionality on a collection, like Dan said. So, you know, you kind of have to understand what they do, but it's so transparent almost, you know, because it's just something that we're so used to doing that you don't even have to think about that there's an iterator underneath it. Yeah. But yeah, I agree with you guys. I, I don't think this is something that you need to deeply understand at all. Yeah, okay. it's, it's like ninja code. To, but if I think understanding iterators is good, but understand it in, in a language that implemented them on purpose and consistent with the language. Well, that that's the other thing that's that's fascinating to me about this is that, you know, we just talked about async await and they pretty much lifted that straight out of C++ or C Sharp. Yeah, absolutely. Microsoft right? on the committee took over from Douglas Crawford, put in async await. And, you know, and I think the syntax is nice on that. But yeah, um, implementing an iterator is confusing at best. And, and you not in a, generally not in a don't normal need to do language, it. Or not in a language where they were intended to be implemented. But yeah. Anyway. So the, the other one I wanted to bring up that I, this, this one we might fight about, but if I, if I can bump this one, service workers, I've only seen them implemented wrong. I've never seen them implemented in a way where it benefited the application in its caching layer, in its functionality, or in its performance. I know that top engineers at Google's are doing it, but I've never seen it at a company that I've worked with where service workers did anything but problems. So you want to define a service worker real quick, KJ? Service worker is a, could be really useful in niche applications. That's not but a it definition. It allows you <laughs> to no, I, it it allows you to capture and rewrite and substitute content for 
HTTP requests. That's one of the core benefits of it is it allows you to take control. It allows you to basically bring the web server into the browser to some degree. It's so a client side. It's a client side proxy essentially yeah. is what it is. So well, every network, every network request that is issued by your web page can be intercepted or in some cases must be intercepted once you have a service worker in place by that service worker. And that service worker can either just pass it through or can do whatever it wants with it. It can redirect it somewhere else. It can bring content from somewhere else, whatever. And by the way, I have to say that a good friend of the show, Kyle Simpson, Getify, would mm-hmm. totally disagree with you on this one, AJ. He has, I'm actually watching video course that he has on front-end masters where he literally claims that uh, every web developer needs to know and understand service workers, just so you know. I think yeah, first we- you got to understand HTTP and a web server and routing. And there's a lot of things you got to understand first. And I think there are only niche cases where service workers have a real tangible benefit other than they're super cool and awesome. Yeah, I usually hear people talk about service workers when I hear them talk about single page apps. And so I'm just going to go down to the spa and have the service worker give me a back rub. And beyond that, sorry, that was terrible. Be, uh, yeah, I mean, you can build functional websites without it. And so to that extent, I don't know that it's something you need to understand. But if you start running into some of the issues that it solves, again, it's one of those things, kind of like the deep knowledge on regular expressions. If you start getting into some of those areas or you're running a single page app where you actually do want some of those end runs to be happening you know, to the, the back end or uh, you want something to be managing your cache or you know, some of the things that service workers actually do and do well, then yeah, I, you know, get in and start understanding them. The you know, main thing, the main this, thing that service workers give you is the one thing is the ability to work offline. That's yes. the main selling point of service workers. That uh, since you intercept a network request and you can tell that you're actually offline, then instead of trying to go to the network, which doesn't exist at this point, you take something from a cache and deliver it to the uh, web page that made the request, and the web page is none the wiser, and uh, the the web application or website can work while it's offline. Now, in addition, you can do all sorts of interesting things potentially around performance and separation of concerns and, and whatnot, but, all, but those are mostly nice to have. The, the main benefit is that, that offline operation. And that goes to the basic question of whether or not in the modern mobile world where connectivity can have issues, that maybe in order for the the web to be successful, you need the ability to handle situations in which you're at least intermittently offline. I think that essentially is just going to boil down to what people's norms are, and you kind of implied that, you know, where as more if more if more websites start implementing it, then yeah, it's going to be a much more critical thing. Whereas most people, I think, are still accustomed to. I don't have service and therefore this web application isn't going to work. I, I guess to close my sentiments, I'd say this. People say don't implement your own auth. There's nothing wrong with implementing your own auth. You just need to learn the three dozen things that everybody who implements their own auth needs to do. Likewise, I would say service workers could be a great tool, but just make sure that you 
figure out all three dozen things that you need to know and that you actually do them the correctly in every single case without fail and that your users don't get stuck on a page that they have no way of getting out of other than going into the developer tools and clicking clear all. I totally agree with that. Uh, I think that to a certain extent, service workers are a bit of, uh, of an overkill. I think that there was the, that attempt with AppCache, which failed partially because it didn't have enough capabilities oh, built in. It works so beautifully, other than the one Achilles heel of not having a stale function. So anyway, they compensated by going the total opposite direction of, of essentially giving you total control in JavaScript of everything. And when you've got total control, you have the total ability to sh not only shoot yourself in the foot, but literally blow your foot off and the rest of your body and uh, the, the entire <laughs> building in which you're located. And well, that's kind of like the Web SQL index DB thing too. Like Web SQL was too simple. They didn't want to, you know, say, okay, it's just going to be SQLite. That is the standard. So then they went to index DB where it's like, nobody has any idea how you'd start to use this. Okay. So with that, we're going to wrap up our topics for today. We still have quite a number of items on our list. Well, not quite, probably eight or nine. So maybe we'll come back and do a third episode and wrap up those items. If you disagree, please tweet at us. Or if yes. you hardly agree. And just yeah, make sure, for sure it's an angry tweet, too. We really like being yelled at and treated disrespectfully. Yes, that would and be it. JS Jabber, C Max Wood in particular for the angry tweets. And then. Uh, yeah, we love it. I wonder who C Max Wood is because I'd feel bad. Anyway, when I first started taking computer science classes in college, I thought programming was just a joke. In fact, I changed my major over to engineering and started doing computer engineering and chip design. Then I found Ruby and I fell in love. I love Ruby. It was my first real programming language where I dove deep and really learned how to make software that makes a difference for other people. Since then, and the way that we got started with devchat.tv, we started a show called Ruby Rogues. It's currently in the 400s of episodes. We've talked to hundreds of people in the Ruby community about the Ruby community, about the Ruby programming language, about Rails, and about what makes good programming. So if you're interested in Ruby Rogues or you just want to hear a long series of experienced programmers talking about real problems, then go check out rubyrogues.com. Anyway. <laughs> so moving on to picks, we will start with the best looking out of all of us and go with Amy. Okay, thanks. <laughs> I'm going to go with, I don't know, I haven't tried this yet. Browsing Hacker News this morning. It looks like it's something called the markup. And it looks like if you type in your URL, it will tell you all the different trackers that are associated with that URL and where it's sending all of your data. I don't know. There's a lot of different tools I feel like out there that does that, that do this, but I don't know. It was on Hacker News this morning, so I figured it was worth a try. So, yeah, I use a plugin called Ghostry keep... that displays all the yeah, trackers. Yeah, yeah. I've used, I've used that one in the past, too. And I feel like I need to pick something else. I'm looking around if I have anything interesting in my room or refrigerator or I don't have anything. I got nothing new and exciting. Have I have I picked frozen yogurt lately? There's can I don't know. I don't know what they're called. I think you have in the past, but they all run together after a while. They're so good. I'm like addicted to this new kind that I've been buying. I think it's called like start with a Y, I think. Yeah. Okay. That'll be my early pick. It's okay. a Y-A-S-F-O, frozen Greek yogurt. Super good. Ooh, Greek's good. Is it low fat? Yeah. Greek's usually sort of high in fat, is it? No, I mean, it's, I don't know how much fat is on here. I'll try oh, to look. Okay. But it's like, 
like five grams of protein and only a hundred calories. And what's the mm. sugar on here? The sugar's not very bad either. And I take that sugar's 13 grams, only two grams of fat, but they're really good for little snacks. I'm addicted to them. Good deal. All right, Dan. I have to say that getting pics is becoming ever more challenging for me. I guess partly it's just because, you know, more episodes of being on the show, but it's also the current situation with, with COVID because I'm literally not leaving the house. Uh, and it, it, by the way, in Israel, we are under lockdown yet again. I think we are the first country in the world to do a second lockdown. Yay, what an achievement for us. No, um, I think Australia beat you to the punch a little bit, but maybe, maybe they're the same time. I don't know. Anyway, it, it's really becoming difficult to pick nice things when you're always just stuck inside. So after some thought, I decided to actually pick you, Steve, because I've been seeing those terrifying images coming from the West Coast that literally look like the apocalypse with the, the, these huge fires that you've had over there. And I know, Steve, that you're a volunteer firefighter. And I have to say that I really look up to people who are willing to put themselves out there and, and literally risk life and limb for the benefit of the community and go above and beyond. So I, I definitely want to thank you for that, even though I don't live over there, but I have friends who do. So thank you very much for, for, you, for what you and, your, your, and the other firefighters over there have done, you know, saving lives. Thank you very much for that. Well, thank you for that. I, uh, yeah, I spent a couple of days and nights uh, during those first four days when it was really uh, quite hairy here in our particular area where, I, where I'm a firefighter. And these, fire, these fires went all up and down Oregon, you know, from north to south. We were fortunate where I'm at in Clackamas County in that we didn't have a huge loss of buildings and structures and homes and stuff and lives. I don't think we had any lives lost here in our county as compared to farther south, uh, Marion County and Jackson County, farther south. They had a number of buildings and whole towns just wiped out. But wow. there were many, many people who were out there three and four days at a time, much longer than I was. But yes, it's, it's, it's a lot of work, a lot of smoke, but definitely worth it when you know you've, you've you know, helped save homes and, and lives and property with these wildfires. And they were, these are once in a blue moon type fires, at least for our area. And there's a whole different conversation about why we've had them. It was a combination of 24 hours, probably about 48 hours, actually of really, really hot, dry winds just cranking up to like 50 miles an hour at some points. And that's what really drove a lot of the fires in the first couple of days. And there's bigger topics of forest management or lack thereof and allowing brush to build up and create these tinder boxes. But anyway, all that said, thank you for the, for the shout outs. There's many, many people like me uh, who are out there for a much longer time and, and doing a lot more. So let's move on to AJ. All right. So first one is a funny one, which is the XKCD web stack or might also be called dependency. Is it called web stack or dependency? Anyway, it's got this complex structure that looks kind of like a mix between Legos and Jenga. Yeah, this one's awesome. I've seen this. And there's like one little domino down at the bottom and it's, it's it says all modern. You just have to look at it anyway. A project um, some random person in Nebraska has been thanklessly maintaining since 2003 and that holds up your entire stack. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is like, this is real, right? So there are projects that you, <laughs> that are in every, every single project that you build 
They're part of core infrastructure. They're not on GitHub. The person isn't on Twitter. Their code is in like some SVN repository that they haven't changed since 1997. Uh, sometimes the code hasn't been updated since 1997. And it's just like a fundamental part of everything, but it's totally outside of the realm of anything a modern developer would, would understand if they haven't dug deeper. And so I just thought that that's like hilariously true. And, you know, that's what it is. I'm also going to pick YCs, that's Y Combinators, how to start a startup. Probably picked this in the past. If I haven't, I've done you all a disservice. Anybody who is technical founder or on an early stage, a technical member of an early stage team should watch this video series because I don't even remember all the reasons, but it, it's just, it's really good. And it's not, it's not the panacea of advice, you know, that's, you know, but, but these it's, it's advice worth listening to absolutely hundred percent for sure. Is it advice that you should follow? I mean, it's case by case, but this, this is generally good advice about how to think about a product, how to think about growth. And, and if, even if you're not a co-founder, if you're on an early stage technical team, I think that you will enhance your benefit to them, which you're obviously there not for the money, but because you love the product and because you, you know, want that, to see that benefit. So even if you're not on the business end, I think learning some of this would be beneficial to you. I'm also going to pick, so Matt Holt that we had on the show last week, he, I run into stuff of his all the time. He's the most prolific developer in terms of solving problems that I have, that I run into over and over and over again. So he's got code base called Archiver that builds a binary called Arc that handles every type of archive except for 7Z. So it's got RAR, BZ2, TAR, ZIP, da 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 you name it, it handles it. And I'm uh, gonna talk with him today actually about seeing if he'll allow a little bit of C code in in order to get the unzip handling done. But in the meantime, I also was working with another developer to get some, some C, Go hybrid code that they wrote into a binary that's distributable. So if you're interested in either of those, I've got a cheat sheet for ARC up already at webinstall.dev slash ARC, that's A-R-C, and then webinstall.dev slash un7z should be up before the show goes live because I already put in a couple of PRs that the author accepted and is happy with the direction that I'm talking about. So that, that binary will, uh, I've already got a prototype of it and, and that will be available soon and I'll, I'll have the cheat sheet up. And then the last thing for today, and then I'm finally out of my dog pile of picks that have just been mounding up forever, is for those of you that would like to send email, and there's lots of problems with things like Mailgun, particularly it goes into a queue and it takes forever. And so if you're doing user validation with email, Mailgun doesn't, at least in my experience, doesn't seem to be like a good solution because you don't know whether the email is going to get there in two seconds or in five minutes because it'll do either. So if you wanted to set up your own mail server, this is one of those things people say, don't set up your own mail server. You can do it. But there's things you got to know and things you have to test for. So I'm going to pick, first of all, so you'd like to send some email through code by Jeff Atwood on his Coding Horror blog, which kind of outlines the whole process. I'm going to pick Haraka, which is the node mail server that is used by Craigslist and lots of other high-profile sites. And then I'm going to pick MKI 
which is a email spoofing site. It's legal email spoofing. Quite know how that works, but I guess it's because email was never secure in the first place. So they're only exposing to you tools that are already available, but it allows you to spoof emails within your own company so that you can test your email security and find out that actually anybody can send an email as the CEO without having any credentials whatsoever. And that's good to know. Um, then MX Toolbox, which will help you solve that problem by setting up DMARC records, and MailTester.com that will further help you solve that problem by, again, testing DMARC records, SPF records, etc. And I'm going to go ahead and put a link to something that doesn't exist yet, because I am going to create this blog post. But I'm just, yeah. So I'm going to give you a link that's actually a gist that I'm going to fill out with a blog post that gives more concise details about how to do some of this stuff for those of you that need to set up mail. And if, uh, if that just is still empty next week or when this goes live, don't feel, feel free to write me an angry comment because I'm, I'm telling you I'm going to do this. So in other words, that will give us the gist of how to do it. <laughs> okay. So, boy, that went over like a lead balloon. I think Dan's smiling at least. So for my pick, since I tend to spend most of my time in the Vue.js world, as of this recording date, Vue.js was three, version three, the long anticipated version was recently Yay, released. That's been coming for a while. Long time. So anyway, I'm going to put in a blog post about all the new things that there are in Vue.js three, uh, whether it's how to set things up, the composition API, the enhanced use of TypeScript, suspense, uh, so on and so forth. So, link so now to you the also blog need to use. The, so you need to know TypeScript to use Vue these days. No, what it means is that the core itself is written in TypeScript, so you get a lot of the suggestions, enhancements, and I believe the integration, the use of TypeScript is much easier in version three than it was in version two. It's not so shoehorned in as it was in version two, uh, but you're not required to use it when you're writing a view app. It's just, it's built in. And so it gives you some assistance there. And so last but not least, what's up, Chuck? Yeah. So I'll throw out a couple of picks. One, I've been listening to Brendan Burchard's high performance podcast, and he's got so many ideas and just things that you can implement to get more out of your life, which is amazing. I, I really love his stuff. His books are terrific. So I'm going to pick Brendan Burchard. And then the other pick that I have is another thing that I've been picking up for work. And I've really been enjoying this. It's Stimulus.js. And Stimulus.js is a JavaScript mini framework, I guess. It, anyway, it, it's a whole lot simpler than Vue, Angular, or React. And I really dig it. It's put out by Basecamp, who also puts out rails but yeah it's it's super simple easy to pull together rails ha now has view components which is it kind of stole some of the ideas of components from some of the other javascript frameworks and so when you kind of put the two together you get a lot of the javascript nice stuff that you would want to do with a jquery or an angular view or react that you can just marry up to that view component and so it's all one concern and you can uh, make it all happen the way you want, but you know it's not you're not building single page apps with it. So anyway, 
I'm, I'm really, really liking it. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Probably. Hey, Chuck, are you familiar with Alpine JS? No. Look at Alpine because I remember when Alpine came out, it was supposed to be sort of an enhancement to stimulus because I remember listening to Adam Wilden uh, talk with uh, the guy who wrote Alpine, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head or offhand. Uh, but anyway, you might want to look into Alpine as well because, if, like I said, I think it's supposed to be have some enhancements to stimulus or things you can't do in stimulus. Huh, I'll have to check it out. Yeah, so is it built on top of stimulus? No, I don't think it was built on top of it. I think it was it was built from scratch. But anyway, okay. Again, if I misstated anything, send mean tweets to C Max Wood. C Max Wood. That poor guy. I'm C Max W, but uh, you oh C Max W. Oh darn it, you're right. Okay, C Max W W. Nope, it's all good. Anyway, um, yeah, those are my picks. I'm also still working on the most valuable dev stuff. I'm going to put on a summit in December, and I'm going to start pulling in experts to come and teach us how to be most valuable devs on our team. So go check that out at mostvaluable.dev. Mm, that's really interesting. All righty. So with that, we got a little long today. We are going to wrap it up this podcast that is chock full of valuable JavaScript information. Thank you to everybody that was here and we will see you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.